0: Yeah, I think that the most critical part is identifying lymphedema early and for healthcare providers to have the recognition that a little bit of swelling is not insignificant. For so long, we told people who were at risk for lymphedema or who had lymphedema, don't exercise, it's bad, it will, it will cause lymphedema. Don't lift heavy things. Don't lift more than five pounds for the rest of your life. We have to take that and throw it out the window. People who have lymphedema should do exercise, strength training, resistance training, and they can do it to a pretty high degree.
1: Welcome to the REACH podcast, where you'll hear from researchers, doctors, and patients themselves on how exercise, nutrition, and lifestyle behaviors can reduce cancer risk and improve survivorship. I'm your host, Kieran Fairman. This week's episode of the REACH podcast is sponsored by the Lamstrong Foundation, which is a non-profit organization founded by Major League Soccer goalkeeper and Stage 4 Hodgkins and former survivor Matt Lamson. The mission of the Lamstrong Foundation is to provide difference-making financial, emotional and motivational support to cancer patients and families in all stages of cancer treatment and recovery, as well as to fund proven cancer researchers. So for more information and regular updates on the Lamstrong Foundation and what they're doing, go ahead and follow the Lamstrong Foundation on Facebook or visit lambstron.com today. Hey, welcome back to episode 30 of the REACH podcast. Today I'm chatting to Nicole Stout who is a physical therapist down in Sarasota, Florida and Nicole is quite frankly one of the experts in lymphedema rehabilitation. She's done a ton of work publishing in this area, has a, a wealth of clinical experience and uh, I really wanted to get her on the show because we've talked about lymphedema and rehab in that area a lot but we haven't been able to dive into the specifics of it and talking about what to look for, some of the signs and symptoms and how to manage care. And Nicole has done a really good job of, of identifying this kind of perspective surveillance model of catching symptoms as they arise, not only in lymphedema, but in other areas of, or other side effects of cancer rehab, instead of coming to the point after treatment or at a point where the recovery is longer and it's a, a more pronounced rehab as opposed to if you, if you treat the issues as it comes uh, it saves a lot of the longer term problems down the line so again we kind of just chat about one her background and expertise in lymphedema rehabilitation working with cancer patients and survivors and, and kind of some advice on how to manage those symptoms and then the need to identify these symptoms and, and she talks about this prospective surveillance model identifying these symptoms and the, as they arise and then treating patients differently based on what symptoms they're experiencing so a great chat. I really appreciate Nicole taking the time out of our day to chat to us. And uh, we'll jump straight into the interview. Enjoy it. Brilliant. So listen, Nicole, I really appreciate you being on the show this morning. Um, I know I don't know what the weather's like, but I'm sure it's hardly a, a great day for golf up there, is it? It
0: is. I'm in Sarasota, Florida, and uh, it's a beautiful day to do anything outdoors. So thanks, Karen. I really appreciate you having me and, and excited for this discussion.
1: All you people in Florida, you just... You don't even have any remorse about being how proud of how sunny it is.
0: We we don't, and that, that's why <laughs> we, right? We, we don't, and, and you can anyone can visit any time, or feel free to move to Florida at any time. Um, and it's uh, the reason we live here is because it's just absolutely gorgeous this time of the year, all the way through um, through about May, and then we get into the jungle weather in the summer. It's a little less attractive, but um, yeah,
1: I've I've strategically tried to develop collaborations. Down south, just for that exact reason.
0: Um,
1: so let's start with a little bit about your background, because you've got a wealth of experience in the area of of cancer rehab, and uh, I think we're going to have a great discussion day about a couple of different areas in there. But uh, let's start with your background and, and how you got into the field and, and what you've done.
0: Um, thanks. That it's actually kind of interesting. I, I've always said I'm I've sort of become the expert by default because there just were not a lot of people doing what I was doing in the late 1990s and early 2000s in seeing, treating, managing people with cancer-related morbidity and with lymphedema. So those, those, those areas of practice in physical therapy sort of came into their own in the late 90s and early 2000s. So I'm a physical therapist by background and training. I have a doctorate degree. Um, and I worked as a clinician first and then as a clinical researcher. So my career has sort of spanned being in that clinical space, seeing firsthand how individuals suffer with the sequela of cancer treatments, how it impacts their function, how it impacts them psychologically. Um, And then I had the opportunity to really study that. I was working with the Department of Defense and was on two intramurally, I was the PI on two intramurally funded research protocols and studied breast cancer related morbidity and recovery after breast cancer treatment. So I've really, I've worn various hats and been able to see the clinical aspect of this and then to be able to study an innovative model that puts the around, the that was based on the premise that we know cancer treatments are going to do terrible things to the body, and so therefore, why aren't we being more proactive in putting rehabilitation at the forefront? So that's that's a bit of my background and how I've sort of moved through. Um, I like to say today that I'm a reformed clinical researcher. <laughs> I, now too, I, I now, you know, sort of because I've become that expert by default because not a lot of other people do this. Um, I have a wealth of knowledge, and I feel as though I want to bring others along that pathway to see the benefits of cancer rehab. So I'm working more now in a capacity that engages subject matter experts, creating national initiatives around cancer rehabilitation. So it's kind of, I've become, as I like to say, a research advocate, um, because there's so much out there that's good research and work, and we're just we're not making that bridge to disseminating it to the clinic. So that's that's sort of where I am right now, trying to better integrate rehab into the oncology continuum mm. so that, that that clinical aspect doesn't get missed.
1: Yeah, that translation piece is huge. I think there's, I mean, we met on Twitter. I think there's so many people like us with that same passion and we're we're kind of at the point where, we're convinced of the efficacy. Now, how can we really get people bought in, in clinicians, practitioners, like yourself, physical therapists, in the, in the trenches who are working? How can we disseminate that knowledge? Um, but we'll we'll start talking about some of that in terms of lymphedema because I think um, it, it's misunderstood. I think there's a lot of misconceptions, fear about working around lymphedema. So, uh, and obviously, you've done a lot of work in this area. But first, let's talk about what it is and who's at risk for it. And then talk about kind of some of your work to, to, to manage symptoms of lymphedema.
0: Yeah, so lymphedema is a swelling condition that occurs in the body whenever we do damage to lymph nodes. So many of us think about our circulatory system and we're familiar with the heart and how the blood works and functions and moves through the body. The heart and the lungs and blood circulation. The lymphatic system is a parallel system, but it's in, in, in many times they're, they're, people think of them synonymously. but They're intimately associated, but they're very, very different. Um, and the lymphatic system is, I sort of call it the, um, the sewage system of our body. It kind of is. It takes away waste products and materials that are noxious to the tissue. But it also has a really important function in recycling proteins, large molecules that can't go through our circulatory system so lymphedema occurs when we disrupt the function of the lymphatic system and in cancer related treatment cancer surgeries particularly and radiation therapy we do a lot of damage to regional lymph nodes so when a cancerous tumor is diagnosed we identify in the region where that the local region where that tumor was, we identify the adjacent lymph nodes and we take them out with surgery because if a cancer is going to start to spread through the body, the first place we can identify that is in the lymph nodes. So it's a really important part of cancer surgeries to take out lymph nodes. It's important, but it does a lot of damage to the system. And the result of that can be this end point of swelling. Now, it's, I, I think of it like a you know, sewage system. Think of the plumbing in your house, right? If your plumbing is working, you're getting rid of waste products. If you take out and damage some of the plumbing in your house, there's a risk that you're going to get a backup. Um, and so when that happens, that's what happens in your body. And when that happens, you start to see swelling in the tissue around the area where those lymph nodes were removed. So it's a different kind of swelling than what we see with congestive heart failure, um, or kidney or liver disorders, you know, those types of things present a systemic edema, so they're all over the body, arms, feet, hands get swollen. But with lymphedema, it's really localized swelling in the region of where those notes were taken. And we have to treat it very differently because it's not just diuretic patients, or individuals with swelling, it's get the lymphatic system to reinvigorate itself and begin to take up that lymphatic fluid that's congesting.
1: So is there a, or what's what's the correlation, I suppose, between the amount of lymph nodes removed and the extent of lymphedema experienced?
0: Yeah, there's a whole body of research that has burgeoned over the last 15 years looking at risk factors related to the development of lymphedema. So everyone who has lymph nodes disrupted because of cancer surgeries is at risk for developing lymphedema. And we take out lymph nodes to varying degrees. Sometimes we take one or two with a sentinel node biopsy. Sometimes we take out 40 We know that there's a relationship to the development of lymphedema. The risk for developing lymphedema is related to the number of nodes that are taken out. So more nodes removed equals greater risk, right? Damage more plumbing and the (laughs) risk of of the backup is greater. We also know that there are other factors um, that are associated with the onset of lymphedema. Some of those are lifestyle factors. Obesity is a great example. We know people who are obese are at greater risk. Um, So there are are things that we can identify, though, as this swelling begins to occur. Um, We've studied it long enough to know you don't just wake up one morning and have lymphedema and it's swollen with a big fat arm or leg. We know that it tends to progress gradually over time. So here's the benefit for rehab professionals. If we can follow someone prospectively who we know is at risk, right? They've had lymph nodes removed, they've had radiation therapy, that contributes to risk. Um, And we know they're at risk, so we follow them in a prospective manner and we monitor that limb for early development of swelling. We can manage it very early um, with much more conservative interventions before it becomes a bigger disabling issue for an individual. Uh,
1: That kind of leads nicely into, because we'll kind of come back to, to certain exercises that you're you're fond of and typically employ but your this idea of a prospective surveillance model really mirrors what we like to do in the exercise world in in as you said being proactive about it and, and targeting these problems before they become bigger problems so you kind of alluded to it but talk a little bit about the traditional model where you're just kind of attacking symptoms and then go into your work in in developing this prospective surveillance model and and how they kind of compare and contrast
0: Yeah, and interestingly, if you look back at the trajectory of cancer treatment, we have come so far in the last 40 years in saving lives. Um, not, Not as many people used to survive cancer treatment. And so through the 1970s and 80s, as survivorship started to increase from better treatment, more sophisticated treatments for cancer, more people were living. And the oncology community sort of had this perspective of, This is great. You're living. You should be happy to be alive. And patients who were surviving were saying, yeah, but I have pain. I have swelling. I'm fatigued. I can't go back to work. I have all these problems. And so, you know, sort of the dawn of morbidity management came in the 1990s and and into the 2000s. So physicians were recognizing that people had lymphedema. They would see big, fat, swollen arms or legs. Um, They could see Gate deviations, they could see frozen shoulders, um, and they would react to that and send them for rehabilitation when those issues were significant and became very disabling. So that was sort of the traditional model of rehabilitation that we got into in the 90s and early 2000s. More people were surviving, they were surviving with a lot of impairment and morbidity, and physicians were starting to say, wow, all right, I've got to send you for therapy, we need to manage this, when it was disabling. So fast forward to today again we know inherent in cancer treatment are all of these negative side effects that can potentially diminish function and so the premise behind the prospective surveillance model was because we know that there's this anticipated decline in function anticipated emergence of functional impairments we also know that rehabilitation providers have skills that can measure, identify, treat those dysfunction. So marry those two concepts together and let's put a rehabilitation provider at the beginning right at the point where an individual is diagnosed with cancer. And let's do baseline measurements to assess their level of function, their strength, their mobility, their tolerance to activity, their endurance, their limb volume. Because here's the thing about a diagnosis of cancer, right? Yesterday, that person was going to work, playing golf, taking their kids to school, doing all of their household chores and errands, and today they're diagnosed with cancer. So if we're able to capture a baseline assessment of their function, really at that point of diagnosis is sort of a, a near normal assessment. Of their function. Prospective surveillance was about now following that individual forward throughout the cancer care continuum because they will undergo surgery, chemotherapy for a protracted period of time, radiation therapy, uh, sometimes chemo and radiation together, and then they'll be on a, a schedule sometimes of additional treatments for months or years even after that. With each of those interventions, there are At these punctuated time points, there are new risks that are introduced with each treatment. Surgery brings with it certain sequelae. Chemotherapeutic agents have side effects that impact function differently in different people. Different agents have different side effects. Radiation therapy. So in order for us to get the best perspective on how an individual is functioning through cancer treatment, we have to reassess them through cancer treatment. So prospective surveillance said, let's get a baseline assessment, and let's standardize follow-up by doing repeat interval measurement, just reassess those baseline measures at one month, three month intervals throughout the continuum of cancer treatment, just to start to look for meaningful change over time. So one of the first areas that we published in um, with regard to efficacy of the prospective surveillance model was in lymphedema, because what we found was by having a baseline measurement of what their normal limb volume is. And remember, your limb volume is due to not just swelling or edema in your arm, fluid in your arm, you also have muscle, you have fat. So as people go through cancer treatment, maybe they gain weight, maybe they lose weight, uh, maybe they change their activity levels, but you tend to see those things reflected symmetrically in both limbs. So at baseline, we measure both limbs, we follow them at three-month intervals, and what we found was We were detecting a clinically meaningful change in edema very, very early. And by early, I mean it was almost subclinical. We were using optoelectronic infrared pyrometry, and we were, patients were telling us, my arm feels a little heavy or tingly or funny. It just doesn't feel right. Um, Yesterday, it was a little puffy, and today it's normal. Those are all signs and symptoms that are predictive of the onset of lymphedema. So when we identified early this little bit of swelling, um, I laugh when I say a little bit of swelling because I tell my patients there's no such thing as a little bit of swelling that's insignificant. You need to, <laughs> you need to see us. Um, but when we identified it, we treated it conservatively. These folks don't need a big uh, intervention with complete decongestive therapy. We put them in a compression sleeve for about a four-week time period daily wear with compression. And um, what we saw was no limitation on their activities, exercise, normal activities. But what we saw after four weeks of wearing the sleeve was that their limb volume went back down almost to normal. And when we followed them out, then we said, take yourself out of the sleeve. Don't wear it every day. Go around your normal activities. If you think that you're going to do something strenuous, though, put the sleeve on. So we educated them about... Smart strategies and techniques to manage their limb, manage the condition, and when we followed them at six months and then at one year, what we found was that swelling had not represented so uh, you know i don't I don't think we prevented lymphedema from occurring. these folks will still have they'll be very in a very tenuous situation and have to manage but what we did, I think with the prospective surveillance approach was we reduced the, uh, the risk of that lymphedema becoming a more chronic, severe, lifelong condition. So it was a, a, not really a prevention of lymphedema. We didn't prevent lymphedema. I think we mitigated the progression of the condition more than anything else.
1: That's huge, and it really highlights the, the case and the need to include this as, as a standard of care at the offset of treatment. Because as you said, each, each kind of stage of treatment is going to bring with it unique side effects and um, whether it's range of motion or or muscle uh, issues pain fatigue whatever it is all of those will present after treatment and instead of saying okay you've been through six months of treatment now we'll manage all these symptoms when they're at a point where they, they potentially are more severe let's take them as they come and that's that's what I love about this perspective surveillance model and that as you said it's it's these consistent assessments and it also really highlights the the ability to individualize the treatment yeah. As you said when you're when you're going through this battery someone's going to have more pain fatigue or loss of muscle strength and someone else may have more severe symptoms of lymphedema
0: right. you can
1: target the treatment better
0: That, Kieran that's probably one of the biggest take home points around prospective surveillance so what we found was by using this model it's not just about lymphedema it's about the shoulder function. It's about return to work. Um, It's about fatigue. It's about balance. It's about the whole cluster, the aggregate burden of impairment that, that accumulates over time throughout the course of treatment that we see and we can identify early. So you're absolutely right. Upper body and upper quadrant function, what we found using through using the prospective surveillance model, we were able to intervene early and restore range of motion almost immediately postoperatively. Our patient population at one year had less than an 8% rate of shoulder impairment. And if you look at the literature just in prospective trials in breast cancer populations that have looked at sh- rates of shoulder impairment, they're upwards of 40, even 60% reported in the literature. Um, fatigue, we were able to er- identify early correlates of fatigue uh, and it- intervene with an exercise program to help to manage or mitigate levels of fatigue from becoming disabling. So the concept really is about managing the patient as a total, the whole individual total totality of function, as I like to think about it for the individual. So we're not just looking for swelling, or we're not just looking for weakness, we're looking at this person. And we're saying, where are you beginning to have issues, pain, diminished levels of function? And what might the underlying impairments be? Because, you know, in cancer, in cancer impairments, we like to look at um, and quote statistics right within disease state about impairments, and we like to say things like, "Well, 40% of women who have breast cancer are at risk for lymphedema, and you know 60% are at risk for shoulder impairment." Um, but what we know in aggregate. Um, Dr. Katie Schmitz had a couple of really nice publications that looked at the aggregate burden, and the majority of these patients, greater than 60% of them, have one or more morbidity. So we're not just talking about managing a person who has lymphedema, we're talking about managing an individual who's going through cancer treatment, who has psychological and psychosocial impact on their treatment and their function, Um, there's financial impact, there's functional impact. There's spiritual and and, and well-being impact. So how do we use a model like this to proactively monitor this person, identify when they start to decline, and then come in and help to to build them back up? Um, You know, one of the other things that I I say is of critical importance with the prospective surveillance model is we can repeatedly assess function, we can identify impairment, we can manage it. Keep people functioning. But the other really critical piece is at every one of those repeat visits, the therapist is going to spend more time with that person than almost anyone else on their medical team. We're going to put our hands on that person. So it's a very different model. It's a very different intervention, even for the patient, because they now have someone that they see in a repeated fashion. Um, that's educating them about movement, educating them about function, giving them license. You know, they say, Well, I thought about going back to the gym, but I don't know if that's a good idea. And the oncologist says, um, you know, sure, give it a try. And the therapist says, Okay, yes, but here's how we want you to do it, right? Here's a strategy to get you back into that. So we don't just we don't just see them give them some exercises and shoot them out the door. The nice thing about prospective surveillance is You have these repeated interval visits. You can educate these individuals on what is normal as far as recovery from cancer treatments. Yep, you started on a taxing chemotherapy agent. The numbness and tingling, you're going to have that to varying degrees of severity. But here's what we want to watch for. Is it disabling you in doing your functional activities of daily living? Is it preventing you um, from being able to get through your day? Are you noticing that there are deficits in your balance and things that you might be um, experiencing throughout your day? So it's not just about informing people um, of the problems and issues that they might be having. It's a it's an interactive strategy for helping them to manage, really developing a relationship to um, to sort of help to support them throughout the cancer continuum.
1: Um, one of the one of the points about that that I don't want to skip over is another kind of publication for your group was talking about the cost of this. In you know, one of our, our biggest frustrations is in facing resistance is people want the, the the bottom line is the red line and how much does it cost. And you talk about saving money. I think it was, you know, nine hundred compared to three thousand for traditional therapy. So kind of jump into that a little bit and talk about that.
0: Yeah, so the, um, the dirty secret about prevention, right? prevent models of prevention or secondary prevention. Um, the, the dirty secret that insurance companies don't want to insurance companies don't want to admit to is um, they don't want to pay upfront for preventive interventions because the benefit they're not going to see the benefit of that. The benefit of that happens in an individual over the course of time. And that individual may or may not be on their insurance plan in a year or in three years or in five years. You know, here in the U.S. we have these these crazy insurance plans and people move through what we call different risk pools, work with different plans. So um, prevention is 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 not at the forefront of what we do. And this is an example. So we think of cancer as a chronic disease. This is a prime example of where prevention makes sense in dollars and cents even in the short term, and we published um, a direct cost analysis that looked at the prospective surveillance cost, direct cost of the treatment intervention, the visits with the therapist, the intervention using compression sleeves if they develop lymphedema. So what would it cost us to see every patient who has breast cancer and screen them and monitor them over the course of the year? It costs about450 dollars to do that throughout the course of the year, to screen every patient. Now, not every one of those individuals will go on to develop lymphedema. If we look at the literature and we say about a third of them will develop lymphedema, the cost to treat them using prospective surveillance, the cost to treat them using prospective surveillance is about 650 dollars. So we have to add in the cost of sleeves, the cost of additional visits. If we compare that to individuals who have stage two lymphedema or more advanced lymphedema who require complete decongestive therapy, um, it becomes a much more substantial cost, right? They have far more visits. They require compression bandages. um, They require garments. It's about $3,500 to treat those individuals. So we cost cost modeled that out over the course of a year with incidence rates estimates of um, about one third of individuals developing lymphedema. Uh, Now remember, in that traditional model, right, we're waiting for the condition to occur. So we're not screening anybody, right? So we're saving that $400 per person, theoretically. Um, But if we look at over the course of one year, if we screen and we identify early, um, the cost of treating lymphedema with prospective surveillance in a third of women is about $36,000. If we screen nobody and we wait for a third of these people to develop more advanced lymphedema, it's over $100,000 a year that we're paying to treat out-of-pocket for that condition. So your payers, in a time period of one year, um, which is impactful to them, it's impactful to their bottom line, that prospective surveillance model shows that there's a cost-benefit. As long as that incidence rate doesn't fall below about Six percent. So we did a, we, we, the cost model paper, you can take a look at that. Um, it was published in Physical Therapy Journal in January of 2012. Um, and we ran a lot of scenarios that looked at what if a percentage of patients progress with the condition, How does the cost escalate? So it's still the model is effective and the model is cost effective. Um, considering the incidence rates that we're seeing right now in the literature and the, the rates of progression that we've seen reported. So this is a place where it makes sense cost-wise. Um, the, the, other, the other piece of that that I like to think about was, well, we just we modeled the cost on um, based on lymphedema treatment. But again, model that on fatigue, model that on shoulder impairment and disability. What we didn't account for at all, which I think would even just further make the case, we did not account for any indirect costs. So we didn't account for um, disability adjusted life years. We didn't do any kind of quality or dally measures. Um, it was just direct costs. And I think if you would get into some of the indirect cost analysis associated with that, it's my assumption that it would even further magnify the results of the impact over that one year period. Um, but really, Karen, think about it. That, that premise is, is, should not be lost on anyone even outside of cancer, right? Look at the diabetic population, right? We fail, to, we fail to analyze their gait, we fail to identify early gait deviations that start to lead to Charcot joint deviations and malformations, then they develop a foot ulcer, then they have an open wound that's intractable, and then they have to have an amputation. If we had a prospective surveillance model around chronic condition management, that engages uh, rehabilitation providers, that engages exercise physiologists and exercise specialists in an advanced manner and uses those services proactively, I truly believe that secondary prevention model is is really what can help us to better mitigate the downstream costs, but also the late effects of many chronic conditions, not just cancer. Um, Think about uh, diabetics, um, think about Uh, individuals who have progressive conditions, even like MS or Parkinson's, right? If we can prescribe exercise with intention uh, to impact an outcome, uh, we we can absolutely change the trajectory of their functional decline with those conditions. That's, and that is, I mean, you could cost analyze that in, you know, 10 different ways. And I I really believe you're going to find cost savings and benefit to that with a prospective surveillance model.
1: Yeah, you said a couple of things there in in the way we prescribe exercise. You kind of said, you know, in an advanced manner and with intention. And that speaks volumes to me because we share the same frustration in how exercise and rehabilitation is is provided right now. it's someone has that five-minute meeting with a survivor or a patient and says, yeah, you probably need to get to the gym. And it's generic and it's a pamphlet. Or, you know, maybe in some of the more progressive areas they do have – physiologist or an RD who kind of talks a little bit about it but at the end of the day what what we see in research and you talk about an advanced ma- manner can we progress from physical therapy to you know collaboration with a physical therapist and an exercise physiologist where we, we work together and that transition from you to me then to general health and wellness and as you said managing the cost of that you t- talk about lymphedema it gets so severe where you can't do your job as opposed to we can manage it from the offset and with intention and and in an advanced manner where we know, I, I take your expertise and I take my expertise, we combine that and that's a smooth transition back to health and wellness and, and a kind of fulfilled life and we're going to go into that because I think both of us have a lot of uh, a lot of things to say to that but let's backtrack a bit because of, I've spoke about lymphedema a few times on the podcast but I've failed to kind of get into the nitty-gritty of it and If you have a patient in front of you or or professionals are listening to this and they see lymphedema presented, aside from referring to a PT, um, what are some common exercises you use to kind of mitigate the symptoms? Obviously, it depends on severity, of course, but can you dig into that a little bit?
0: Yeah, I think the, the most critical part is identifying lymphedema early and for healthcare providers to have the recognition that a little bit of swelling is not insignificant. A little bit of swelling is telling us a story that the lymphatic system is in this tenuous place and it is about to tip over and, 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 and lose its ability to manage the fluid load. So when swelling exacerbates and remits, that's an early stage and it's telling us a story that the lymphatic system is is having a tough time keeping up with the load, the lymph load burden. So one of the biggest issues that I see frequently is somebody looks at that patient and says, oh, it's just a little bit of swelling, or they see it one day and it's gone the next, so it must not be an issue. That's exactly the presentation in early subclinical to stage one lymphedema, this exacerbating remitting. So identification and recognition that it's an issue immediately is probably the first thing for healthcare providers to recognize. There's no such thing as a little bit of swelling. It's important. How can you manage that? Um, If you are not a lymphedema specialist I still believe physical and occupational therapists have the background in education and training in that early stage to begin teaching an individual exercises such as stretches, you know, pectoral stretches, postural stretches, um, cervical scaling stretches, things that keep that um, the upper quadrant in the body, things that keep those tissue planes moving many times after, especially in breast cancer, after mastectomy and radiation, we see patients posture change and they go into sort of a forward head posture. The, The shoulder is the glenohumeral joint becomes a little bit internally rotated and depressed and they're sort of protecting that limb. So when you're not moving through your full range of motion, the little, those tissues and those little lymphatics that are still in there trying to function are not able to do their job optimally. So movement helps lymphatic function, not just by enabling the flow of fluid, but muscle pumping helps lymphatic fluid function and lymphatic system function and fluid movement. So um, active and active assist, mobility, range of motion exercises, um, activating large muscle groups, We can also teach patients very um, simplified self-manual lymphatic drainage techniques, even just stimulating the lymph nodes in their neck, doing some deep breathing exercises. Those are the central parts of the lymphatic system. The lymphatic fluid moves through internal mechanisms within the system. So the system itself intrinsically has contractile properties within the vessels that move. Uh, Fluid so it's almost it has it's almost like a hydraulic system if we stimulate the central most proximal part of the system It will pull or wick fluid from the more distal and superficial aspects of the system So even simple things such as deep diaphragmatic breathing um, Massa light massage over the neck and in the armpits Those are things that can help to stimulate the remaining healthy lymphatics to start start to take up some of the slack So those are things that a therapist can do, who's not a lymphedema specialist, can do to begin to mitigate the condition, manage it using that early conservative intervention protocol. The other piece of this, and I go back again to Katie Schmidt's work, um, is around exercise. For so long, we told people who were at risk for lymphedema or who had lymphedema, don't exercise. It's bad. It It will cause lymphedema. Don't lift heavy things don't lift more than 5 pounds for the rest of your life we have to take that and throw it out the window because there is so much more evidence now that says to us resistive exercise strength training exercise aerobic conditioning those are activities that actually can help to mitigate risk in developing lymphedema better lean muscle mass decrease bmi all of those things but The strengthening and resisting um, exercise trials that Katie ran were were phenomenally groundbreaking because they got us over the barrier to say, people who have lymphedema should do exercise, strength training, resistance training, and they can do it to a pretty high degree, um, to a high level. And it not only doesn't cause their lymphedema to get worse, it can help it to improve. Um, Those findings also told us that people who are at risk for lymphedema can exercise to a pretty high degree and not cause lymphedema to occur. So, you know, those are those are some of the things that I think of as a therapist who may not be a, a lymphedema specialist. Those are some, um, some basic knowledge constructs that you can build in your repertoire of practice. And when you engage with someone who has a little bit of swelling, um, you can manage that appropriately. Now, if it is a more progressed situation and they do require more intensive, complete decongestive therapy, um, that's a whole other can of worms, if you will. There's an awful lot um, to understanding the functioning of the lymphatic system, compression, bandaging strategies and principles that I think is better handled under the purview of a, of a lymph, lymphedema specialist. So, um, But there is absolutely no reason that a general physical occupational therapist, um, speech therapy, the speech and swallowing, uh, speech and language pathologist are seeing the early head and neck lymphedema and helping to manage that. So, you know, there's a- absolutely every reason that you have skills that you can manage early lymphedema. And if it if it begins to progress or if it becomes a worsening condition, then, you know, the referral to the specialist is absolutely indicated.
1: I'll go back to something you kind of said at the start in uh, looking at the warning signs of lymphedema. And it's analogous to... You know, you tweak your back when you're lifting weights. Imagine it's a, a deadlift or a squat and you feel that kind of twinge and, and it goes away after a few days and you kind of go, yeah, I'm I'm good to go and you do it again. And then you <laughs> really dis- destroy your back. And mm-hmm. it's the same thing. We kind of see that initial warning sign. It goes away and say, well, it went away, so I'm all good and I go again. And it's 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 a perfect analogy to you see that initial swelling, it may go back down, but that's, that's that warning sign that it may go forward. But, you, I mean, you speak about Katie Schmidt's work, she, I mean, pioneer in the field and what she's done. And it really has changed the perception of a minimum physical therapist and physi- and physiologist in, in how to manage and prescribe exercise for lymphedema. Have you seen that change in clinical practice? Have you seen more referrals to PTs? Have you seen more acceptance amongst oncologists and physicians?
0: Yes. And, and, and it's funny, I'll tell you, early on, there was resistance. Early on, I told Katie this story, and I've told it um, to many people. Um, It was probably three months or six months after her um, New England Journal of Medicine article came out, looking at the PALS study and the resistive weight training, and I was doing a Grand Rounds lecture to a medical oncology group, and they were beside themselves, beside themselves, that how, after all of these years of us telling patients not to exercise, not to lift, now... There's research and we have to we have to go back on what we've said all of these years and for the New England Journal to publish this. I mean, what were they thinking? It was like this. It's like we had broken down this um, the, this sacred wall or this um, sacred altar um, of thou shall not exercise. Um, and my response to that was, isn't it great when science gives us more insight and more information to solving the problem, and now we have evidence to say, yes, you can exercise to a great degree. Now, that was back in you know 2008, 2009, and we've come a long way since then. So far, in fact, I almost, there are times when I almost feel like we're missing a little bit of the other impairments, common impairments that individuals with cancer are experiencing um, because there's been such a hyper-focus on lymphedema. Right, we've got lymphedema, we have cancer centers around the country that have lymphedema therapists and lymphedema programs, and that's fantastic. Our patients have better access to good care than ever before. But their focus so much on lymphedema means if a patient has severe fatigue and needs an aerobic exercise or endurance training program well, we don't do that. We do lymphedema here. So it's almost like we have to sort of bring the pendulum back towards the center. It's almost swung a little bit too far towards the lymphedema impairment space. So let's bring it back towards, again, managing the totality of function of this this cancer population who has multiple needs. Lymphedema is one of them. Um, And making sure that we can engage and and interact and intervene to treat those, those conditions. Because the evidence is there to suggest balance training. We know when we train our balance, um, when we uh, when we um, we integrate exercises around balance training and we, we strain that system, we can improve balance strategies, even in individuals who have peripheral neuropathies. We know if somebody's going through chemotherapy and they begin to experience fatigue. There are various exercise prescriptions that can mitigate that level of fatigue, even prevent it from becoming chronic. So there's there's a body of evidence around each of these impairments and the effectiveness of rehabilitation in either mitigating their severity or preventing them altogether. And and I feel like those pieces just haven't come together yet to support a um, full-on rehabilitation model of care through the cancer continuum.
1: Yeah, and you kind of alluded to it there, the idea that different conditions will require different types of exercise. And it's a perfect segue into this idea that exercise is medicine. And I've had this discussion with a variety of, of people from different backgrounds. And if you look at the kind of behavior change group, they are strong proponents of just activity. And anything to get people moving is better than none. Absolutely, that's the case. The other part of that is where where we perspective is if we're going to treat it as a medicine, we need to think about the dose and the frequency and and how how much is enough, how much is the upper limit. Um, and you kind of talked about it there and if it's if it's peripheral neuropathy, we're going to have a different prescription than, say, a, a prostate cancer patient who is undergoing ADT. Versus someone who's experienced severe fatigue, you may need that aerobic exercise to build up their endurance and capacity. So you've talked a lot about this. So kind of go into that and and what your perspective is on that.
0: Yeah, I I love the the exercises medicine um, efforts that we've seen really emerge in the last couple of months. They've really put themselves in a great position to advocate for if we are using exercise as a modality to intervene for a medical condition. The guidelines that we currently have for physical activity um, are are not what's going to impact an outcome for that that condition, that population, right? So physical activity guidelines are fantastic. They're evidence-based, but they're based on keeping a healthy population healthy. So to your point, getting people moving, having them do some type of activity, yes, that's the bottom line, and that's critically important. But when we start to get into... Um, a disabled population, an impaired population of individuals who have chronic conditions, exercise needs to be prescribed. I have a, a good colleague, a good friend and colleague of mine who likes to use the metaphor. If you're a physician, you would never hand a patient a bag of pills and say, take some of these and you need to take some and see how your condition's going to get better. See what works for you. That's what we do with exercise. Exercise is exactly the same as prescribing a drug. If we're prescribing a drug to manage a condition, we prescribe it at a specific dosage, we give at an, an interval frequency, um, and we talk to people about side effects and we monitor them. Exercise is exactly the same. We need to be prescribing it if we want to have an impact on a condition and we want to get to a positive outcome. So, reconditioning, strengthening, right? Physical activity guidelines are not going to help to recondition someone who is severely deconditioned going through cancer treatment. They need a much more individualized, tailored exercise prescription. So at what frequency, at what dosage, at what intensity? If someone who is severely deconditioned, right, after a a bone marrow transplant, let's say, uh, tries to adhere to 150 minutes of exercise, you know, several times a week, um, It's it's way too much for them. So they start to exercise. They're pushing themselves. It may be dangerous for them They need a prescription for exercise that helps them um, with short bursts of activity that helps them to understand um, energy conservation strategies so there's a lot more to prescription of exercise than just saying to individuals you you need to exercise Um, So I I feel strongly that the idea of exercise as medicine, if we're going to say that, and if we get the buy-in of the physician community with this, we need to start treating it that way as medicine, as a prescription, a dose, intensity, frequency. Those things need to be prescribed specifically for the individual. Um, We also need to monitor response to exercise because... You're impacting physiological systems, and that can be good or that can be bad, especially if someone's in a compromised state. Um, and exercise can impact more than just endurance, right? It can impact bone density. It can impact muscle strength. Um, it can impact um, psycho, psychosocial, psychological status, cognitive function. But in order to have that impact, it has to be prescribed as such to have an, an, an impact on that particular health and condition and outcome. So, I, I feel very strongly that there, is, there are physical activity guidelines that are out there. Exercise prescription is not telling someone who is morbidly obese, who has arthritis that they need to adhere to those guidelines. It just isn't appropriate for that patient population that person needs a referral um, to see an exercise specialist. So whether that's a physical therapist, whether that's an exercise physiologist, we do not leverage the exercise physiology community nearly enough. We have some phenomenally educated, clinically uh, you know, clinically integrated exercise physiologists um, who could really be utilized in, in medical management of, of many of these patients. We just don't utilize them they're not there there's no payment schemes to support them um there's no department in hospitals that's the exercise physiology or exercise department it's you know physical and occupational therapy so we need to be the ones to sort of light the way and say bring in that uh that exercise physiologist or um even psychosocial counseling to help to support this individual with an exercise prescription because we've got to we've got to get over just giving people the advice of exercise because that person who's obese who has arthritis will say all right i'm going to give it a go and they go to the gym and you know what It makes them more sore, it makes them more fatigued, they injure themselves because they weren't given an appropriate prescription to impact their condition.
1: You kind of hit the nail on the head there where uh, I think one of the frustrations for us is we don't really have any sort of billable codes as physiologists. You know, you have someone who comes to you for upper limb dysfunction, you can bring them through a variety of modalities and then bill their insurance company for each modality. But then once they get done with physical therapy, their, their upper limb dysfunction may be mitigated or even, you know, they, they restored range of motion and function. But they're still 100 pounds overweight. Maybe they're diabetic. They do have knee osteoarthritis. You're, you're attacking, you know, a critical symptom. But then what are, what are we doing for the rest of their quality of life? Yeah. So that's a huge part of that transition from PT to exercise physiology. And can we keep that progression going?
0: I almost see it, Karen, I almost see it like a a feed forward and feedback. It has to be a loop, right? An individual who's compromised functionally from a medical condition, whether they're compromised, physiologically compromised, right? Um, Their hypertension's out of control, they're obese, they have a number of medical conditions, they need some type of oversight to begin exercising, right? So let's make that the rehab continuum. But you're right, they get to a point where they're able to independently monitor their their, uh, exercise program, progress, regress as they need to, they learn themselves, they learn how they respond. And then let's move them into that community of exercise physiologists who can help to maintain, help to continue to progress with them, you know, re-engage in their activities, uh, their sport activities or or health activities um, and lifestyle behavior changes, nutrition counseling. But if those individuals run into problems, right, the impairment rears its ugly head and they start to have pain or they start to have some type of functional decline, they come back into the rehab model of care. So we almost, we need this, we need this cycle, this circuit, um, if you will, feedback and feed forward. You know, most individuals eventually should be able to exercise on their own, but we've got to educate them. We've got to help them to get there. We've got, they need to know what's safe. Part of it is, I really believe we don't push, sometimes we don't push patients enough. and, And patients are afraid to push themselves. I reach and it hurts, should I do that or should I not? You know, I exercise and I get a little bit lightheaded, maybe I should stop exercising, as opposed to what's the different pathway I could take with a different type of exercise prescription so that I can advance without having those adverse symptoms occur.
1: I'm really glad you, you started to talk about that and I want to highlight the idea of progression and regression because so many people come to us and say this is it, this is the point at which I continuously get better, you know, and, and we understand, of course, there's going to be there's going to be ups and downs and and you're going to go three steps forward, one step back and being able to educate patients and even general population on on what's going to be that natural progression and regression. It's not we're not going to figure everything out right off the bat.
0: Yeah. And yeah.
1: if they can appreciate that, because I, I think there's there's almost an apprehension in that Oh well, it stopped working. I might as well give up now.
0: Yes, yeah. And
1: so being able to identify and educate the idea of, yeah, it's gonna be ups and downs, but as long as the general trajectory is going forward, that's that's what we're looking for.
0: And that's where interval. Uh, assessment, repeat interactions and engagements with the patient is so important to reinforce that and to show them your trend over time is overall positive, right? So go back to the whole cancer continuum. We fully expect that cancer treatments are going to have a negative impact throughout the duration of, of cancer care. So we expect those things to happen, but At those varied, punctuated interval assessments, we have an opportunity to step in and intervene to help to mitigate that decline, right? So they're going to have ups and downs, absolutely. And we're going to help them to understand those ups and downs are normal. When you have a down, it doesn't mean you're done. It doesn't mean you shouldn't exercise. It means how do we then temper the exercise to bring you back up to a better level? Because chemo is cyclic. They're going to have ups and downs radiation, they're gonna have this continued progression of fatigue as the, the treatment um aggregate the, the side effects of treatment aggregate. Um, so that that all the idea that there's not just exercise is not all for one and one for all, right? It's not this single prescription that we can throw out there and say you know you need to do this it has to be individualized and it has to be aligned with that with those um those ebbs and flows in 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 their abilities and their their functional capabilities throughout treatment uh
1: listen i know you have an appointment so i won't keep you too much longer but we'll we'll finish first of all thanks so much i think it was a a great conversation really insightful and we could talk for hours, so we're probably going to have you back at some point so <laughs> we can keep chatting. So uh, where can people find you in, in all the work you're doing and, and kind of follow with, with everything you got going on?
0: Yeah, yeah. I, and again, Karen, I really appreciate this. I think you and I could talk for hours. And so it makes me think, how can we get a like-minded group together in a, a think tank kind of way? But um, So uh, you can find me on Twitter, um, at Nicole Stout, PT, on Twitter is my handle. I also blog on Medium. You can Google that and find me on Medium. Um, And then I'm also very much engaged. If you are um, interested in professional engagement, um, the American Congress of Rehabilitation Medicine, ACRM, has an outstanding cancer rehabilitation networking group. And we have over 400 members. And it is an interdisciplinary society, which is one of the things I love. So it's not just the PTs and the OTs and the physiatrists, we have behavioral psychologists, we have exercise physiologists, we have speech and language pathologists. It's really this beautiful coming together of um, the variety of disciplines that have an interest in treating and managing individuals with cancer. Um, So we are, I I would encourage you to look at ACRM uh, and as an avenue for engagement in this bigger community. Um, So those are those are some of the highlight areas that I can point folks to Um, Always, you know, there are some really exciting up-and-coming The American College of Sports Medicine is reconvening its roundtable this spring to review those exercise recommendations for individuals with cancer that will be a significant pivotal point for us to look towards the future Um, And any number of you know professional associations are having conferences. I think we're starting to really see um the the number of presentations around oncology and cancer rehabilitation increase but the quality is also getting better and the science um that's being pushed out of those meetings is much better so those are some of the places you can find me probably most easily and uh, facile on twitter
1: <laughs> brilliant and i'll throw all that in the show notes And uh, there there's i really appreciate it again and, and hopefully we'll get you back on soon for part two
0: Absolutely. I'm happy to be a resource, um, you know, and uh, look forward to engaging uh, and going forward, moving this whole community forward, right?